You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. We have another Poetry and Conversation event with Elizabeth Spires and David Yezzi. Also, this Sunday, November 4th, we are trying something new at the Central Library. We're going to have a Writer's Roundtable, which is an opportunity for writers to share their work and receive feedback. So um, if you're a writer in any genre, please feel free to join us. That'll be at the Central Library. And we have flyers about um, these and other programs on the table here. We also have an email sign-up list on the table out in the corridor. And if you sign up for that, we will notify you about poetry at the Pratt. So I hope you'll sign up. We also have an evaluation form. And if you fill that out to tell us how tonight went for you, that'll help us in planning future events. Okay, so to get on to tonight, we're really excited to be hosting poets Joelle Beale, Anne Bracken, and Anne Quinn. Each of them is going to read for a little while, then we're going to have some Q&A at the table, and then they're going to each read one last poem. Um, so I'm going to begin by introducing Joelle. Joelle Beale is the author of White Summer and Broom and her newest book of poems, Tramp. She also edited Elizabeth Bishop and the New Yorker, The Complete Correspondence. A Fulbright professor in Germany and Poland, she has received awards from the Maryland State Arts Council and the Poetry Society of America. Her essays and fiction appear in American Poetry Review, Antioch Review, Black Warrior Review, Gettysburg Review, Harvard Review, and New England Review. She has taught American literature and creative writing at Johns Hopkins University, University of Maryland, Goucher, University of Oldenburg in Germany, and a university in Poland. She served as the 2017-2018 Howard County Poetry and Literary Society Writer-in-Residence. Um, so um, I'm Joel's probably going to read from other books too, but my I just read Tramp, so I wanted to tell you a little about that. Her newest book, it's documentary poetry. It uses newspaper accounts and court records to help us imagine the inner and outer lives of women who chose the vagabond life near the turn of the century. I don't want to come to the edge of myself, says the speaker of one poem. And another poem begins, what did she want and did she find it? Was it more than a job, a roar in the ears, mountains she'll never reach, or was it the ability to move, her life a horse too wild to ride? With their beautiful open-ended syntax and music, the poems enact as well as portray a fierce yearning to slip free of constraints into a dreamed-of freedom. Poet Beth Ann Fennelly says Tramp is a magnificent journey. Please help me to welcome Joelle Beale. Hi, everybody. 
this is really fun, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, I'm going to read a couple of poems um, from Broom, and then I'll read some stuff from Tramp. Could you use your mic? Yeah. Just twist it a little. Okay. All right. All right, the first poem I'm going to read, um, it's for my daughter, uh, Catherine. She's Katie now, uh, but it's at 14 months. All morning you've studied the laws of spoons, the rules of books, the dynamics of the occasional plate, observed the principles governing objects in motion and objects at rest. To see if it will fall, and if it does, how far, if it will rage like a lost penny or ring like a Chinese gong because it doesn't have to, you lean from your chair and hold your cup over the floor. It curves in your hand, it weighs in your palm, it arches like a wave, it is a dipper full of stars, and you're the wind timing the pull of the moon, you're the water measuring the distance from which we fall. So, um, so I wrote a, a series of poems just about the kids. I did it for my first two kids, kind of trying to remember them growing up, and then I ran out of gas for my third. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, I'll read one more poem from this book, and it's called Birthday Poem. Um, and it just kind of just begins. Um, on February 27th, 1969, I don't need to look it up, Macy's or Gimbel's was having a sale. Winter or white, it doesn't matter. They had stuff to sell, and they were going to sell it. And I'd bet real money if I opened the classifieds, I'd see someone looking to hire a cook or girl Friday, someone offering their services as a handyman or hoping to unload a sofa cheap. I know Americans were bombing Cambodia while the Viet Cong was bombing Saigon. The sea had not yet begun to rise, though temperatures had, and the Grateful Dead played the Fillmore, the first of four nights. The record is still available. You can buy a boxed set. My father was not there, though he was nearby, nor was my mother, who was at her parents in the Bronx, waiting for labor to begin. It was my grandmother who recognized the moment and dragged garbage cans into the street to save the space before dropping my mother off at the hospital, where she would be shaved, put under, not to meet me until the next day when the nurse entered the room muttering, poor thing. The earth did not stand still. No one experienced a grand transformation. The wind outside my mother's window continued to blow as the number six rolled along its tracks in a city that had yet to emerge from three feet of snow. When I was five or six, my mother explained how a child comes to be, and this is totally true, like she drew this dot. So she made a pencil dot and said the dot was the egg that was me. When I asked her what would have happened, she also drew the sperm. If that sperm, she also, I'm five, she also drew, did not fertilize that egg, she just looked at me and said, you would still be you. You would just be somebody else. <laughs> not knowing, <laughs> that took a long time to figure out. Not knowing, I think, what box it was she opened up. Call it dumb luck or simply chance as to why a man took one door and not another, why he stopped to read the headlines or started to run down the platform to catch a certain train why he set off one chain of events and not another, a chain that could have been long or short or never occurred at all, that I am one set of particles and you are another, that you are here by a series of events as equally and likely as me. It would be nice to say X happened and it was good, but I can't despite the definite attraction of making some larger claim. 
It's the very tenuousness of each moment that weighs on me that I try to ignore so I can go about my day knowing something as simple as a spilled cup of coffee could keep us from lying in this particular bed on this particular night with these very particular children sleeping between us with the windows and curtains open and morning about to begin when all of it could conceivably have never will never have happened again. Lie with me, love, hold me, grab onto the sheets, batten down the pillows, float with me in this bed over the treetops and out of tune birds. Let us sail out into morning, come what may, over the abyss. So, so Shailene was talking about the, um, the new book, Tramp, uh, which is all documentary poetry. And um, sometimes, you know, you get really seized by things and you just want to find out all about it. And that's what happened with this. Um, and I don't, how I started writing about these women was I read a book on Elizabethan gardens, which was very interesting and had all sorts of cool, interesting facts, like they would paint gold leaf on plants before Elizabeth would come through to, to make the gardens even more luxurious for her. But one detail had stood out um, where they would set up kind of mock battles where she, she would sit up on a hill to observe. And if, you know, a bomb or something just landed on someone's house, well, that just happened and it was too bad. And so I kind of wondered how the poor were treated during that time. And eventually one thing led to another. Um, and I started thinking about how the poor were treated kind of in the U.S. and what was the history of that. Um, so one thing to know is my grandfather actually did this um, where he had kind of ridden on trains. And um, when he was a young man um, in the 20s and early 30s. And um, it's something that was always very mysterious to us, um, being his grandchildren, and something he never really talked about. Um, but he was very glad when uh, I moved to Washington, D.C., because just like a blues song, he remembers a woman in Alexandria who gave him a drink of water. And so he thought people were, were nice. So partly I wanted just to find out maybe what it had been like for him. Um, so the book opens with um, a poem that is based on a newspaper article um, about a young woman named Ada Jones, and um, she was taken into court for um, vagrancy. And um, so a lot of this language comes from the newspaper article, and then I'm also imagining um, you know, what she would have said, just because certain things would have been left out at the turn of the century. Um, they would have been too impolite to say, but they were certainly understood in the article, so I tried to fill in the, in the blanks. So the title is simply the headline from the article. Um, it's in Kansas, the Kansas City Star. A man mistreated Ada Jones, and she is seeking him. Women flock to the municipal court today to hear 19-year-old boxcar vagabond tell her story. Most girls wouldn't like this sort of life. I went to high school two years, read books of adventure, kidnapped, sailing alone, farthest north, pulled them off the shelves with the tips of my fingers, crawled into a boxcar, stayed there until I was far from home. My first employer was a young man in Kansas City. He took pictures, portraits in people's homes, women holding babies, women surrounded by children, mothers and sisters, backs straight as chairs. I collected the money, sometimes I posed, it is for him I've searched all over the country. It is a matter of some urgency. I left the baby with a friend, my father, he wouldn't take him in. I traced the man to Denver, from there to Chicago, where I was going when I was arrested. I've painted buildings, scrubbed floors. Once I worked in the fields. 
the fun of tramping, the excitement of never knowing where you're going, the comradeship, all of it appealed to me so strongly, I almost forgot the object of my travels. Look at my hands. But she did say, like in court, she held up her hands for everyone to see. Um, I also tried to imagine what the women would say to each other um, if they talked. They would often kind of travel undercover. They would cross-dress um, because it was too dangerous, the threat of rape. And, um, and so they would also often travel alone uh, because they didn't want to draw any attention um, to themselves. Um, and so, but I thought if they met up, what might they, they say? So these are um, just some old postcards that I was looking at on eBay, which... That's where the titles come from. So this is Union Pacific Transfer Depot, Council Bluffs, Iowa. One day you wake up in a town you can't name, and there's no way to plot a path from A to B. You hear a train, then you don't. The sound bounces off the hills, gets trapped in a gully, or skims a church spire, only to scatter over a silo that dreams of nothing but thunder and grain. Who says the route is not the shortest distance between two points, says it's a branching river, and you must get in your little boat and paddle down each grassy inlet and tiny stream, as if sets of unreadable alphabets opening beneath your feet and clambering over fence posts were a good thing. I don't want to come to the edge of myself, don't want that sinking towards a bottom that never seems to come. Sometimes I'm held together with pins and strings. I'm pieces of fabric, a dress waiting to be seamed, or I'm the stitches ripped out, threads blown across the floor. I want to lie on a cool, clean sheet, feel it drape over my face, arch my back like a cat, be reduced to nothing but bone, the big wind that races across the field, bend the trees back, push clouds, be shadow, whip past blouses hanging on the line like women waiting for their lives, all of it silver and into the sun. more. All right. Um, these women, a lot of times they only came up in like brief little kind of news items um, and where they were appearing in the newspaper. So all of these women that I'm writing about, um, I got it from newspapers and I was in newspaper archives. And one woman um, kind of was very famous, I guess, as a tramp, as famous as you can be. Uh, for the time, and over a period of, of 20 years, she kept showing up in different kind of national newspapers. Um, but of course, people wouldn't necessarily know that she was the same woman. You were able to tell because she would talk about where she was from, St. Louis, and uh, what her life was like. And so this woman's name was Nell Hale. Um, and um, so I wanted just to think about what her life uh, might have been like and why she, why she left. Um, so this is just me musing on her. She never says why she left, what particular things set her off. Maybe he leaned in too close with his cigar. Maybe he seemed to deliberately let the ash graze her hand. Maybe one night after he climbed on top of her, after he mix, she mixed the alum and water, lay in the tub and inserted the tube, she knew she didn't want his child again. If that was it, she would only say there was a family tragedy, that he beat her, that he did it almost every day. If they lost a child, if he blamed her and she blamed him, if he was too cheap to call the doctor, if she wouldn't let anyone near, 
if they had to pry the child out of her arms before the rigor set in, if he thought hitting her would let her see what she had become, if one thing led to another and not one plate was left, and grief became a forest they couldn't leave, just the same trees, the same river, the same outcrops of rock. Maybe she told him about a wedding, a cousin he never met. She knew the way, her father had shown her how. She packed five days of skirts and waists, the perfect gift, a tea kettle, something they'd need, and he took her to the station, the box wrapped in paper and string, how she let him help her up the step, how she half smiled from the train window, the pot on her lap, how she would use it to wash her face, wash her hair, cook her dinner, clean her knife, how she turned and half smiled, how she turned and looked straight ahead. Thank you. She has started over more times than she can count and believes that she possesses a strong gene for reinvention, driving her desire for change. Anne's changed her job and her mind, but never wavers from her commitment to family, friends, writing, and social justice. She's authored two poetry collections, The Altar of Innocence and No Barking in the Hallways, Poems from the Classroom. Anne currently serves as a contributing editor for Little Patuxent Review, and runs poetry and writing workshops in libraries, community centers, and prisons. Her poetry and interviews have been published in numerous anthologies and journals. Um, so again, Anne is going to read from both of her books, which are both wonderful, but um, the one I just finished was um, No Barking in the Hallways, so I'm going to say something about that. Um, This book brings to colorful life the people, especially the students, and especially the students with special needs or challenges, whom Anne met as a teacher in the public school system. The poems use powerful and pointed details to convey the demands crushing these students and the lovable spirits that we hope will prevail. Quote, the language is always equally as beautiful as the children for whom these poems are written writes education professor Morna McDermott McNulty, and the poems and their subjects do indeed share a strong, quiet beauty. When I serve them green tea and ginger snaps, it's as if we see each other for the first time, Anne writes of the students in one poem. Please help me to welcome Anne Bracken. Thank you, Shailene, for that lovely introduction. Um, I've never heard my bio read before. I wrote that somebody asked for a funny biography or a smart biography, so I usually do the very serious thing, and I just decided to have fun with that about reinventing myself. (laughs) So my first book is um, The Altar of Innocence, and this book is an exploration of of depression. Uh, my mother suffered from depression nearly the, for nearly my entire life. And I, the first part of the book is from my point of view. What was it like to be in that house? What did I observe of my mother? And some of the poems imagine what she might have been thinking. 
And the, the larger questions that I explore in the book are, you know, what happens if you don't get to, to follow your dream? My mother designed the dress that's on this cover. She painted it, designed it, and yet she never got to pursue her dream of being a fashion designer. She never, I never saw her paint, I never saw her draw. And um, I, I had to explore that question, what happens if you don't follow your passion? The second part of the book deals with my own journey through depression and out of a very painful and difficult marriage. So I'm, I'm also exploring why does one woman get well and the other one does not. I think part of the answer is time. So this first poem uh, talks about my mother and it's kind of imagining how she must have felt. Helen lives the queen for a day life. There's no pattern for the life she's living. She can't render sense out of the daily chores, the diapers and meals, homework and toddlers. There's no pasture behind her house, like the golden field in the Wyeth painting. Her dreams play in the shadows, like rogue relatives who squander security for passion. Sometimes she feels degrees away from sanity, like when she imagines her dusty art portfolios whimpering in the basement, buried under the twigs of her youthful dreams. She plays at being happy as she peels another diaper off her infant son and cajoles vegetables into her daughter's stubborn nails. She feels her spirit wither, even as her husband cheers the news of another pregnancy and measures out an ounce of gin for her nightly martini. So my mother had the uh, dual misfortune of dealing with very early psychiatric medication and also self-medicating with alcohol. And as a child, uh, she became so ill that she was hospitalized for six months at a uh, hospital called Seton Institute which used to be off of Northern Parkway. And I was very young. I was seven. Uh, nobody would tell us where our mother was. And my grandmother came to live with us and take care of us while my father continued to work and you know, certainly be concerned about my mother. So I got the message very early that it was fine to be physically ill. You got lots of attention, you could lay on the sofa, you got ice cream, you watched television. But don't be emotionally destroyed. So this is a, a story about the beginnings of my dealing with depression, what I call physical depression. The pediatrician. I tell the doctor how my stomach aches each morning, all through school. More breakfast, he says, and then turns to my father. But deep in my seven-year-old's body, I know that more cereal and toast can't take the place of my mother's Chanel number no. five clinging to her, to me, like a silk scarf. More breakfast will never replace her arm snuggled around my waist as we read caps for sale, side by side on the sofa. As he walks out the door, the doctor asks my father, how's your wife and the new baby? Looking back over their shoulders and smiling sadly at me, they tell stories about someone who is nervous 
and someone breaking down. And the whole time I was growing up, we were a very serious Catholic family. We prayed the rosary, we went to Mass, and we all had a very strong faith. And we always uh, prayed for our mother to get well. And as the oldest daughter, uh, I was the helper, and all I wanted to do was to do something that would help my mother. So this poem is uh, an imagining of what that might have looked like. Time travel. I want to go back to my mother, who wrote those desperate notes and left them on the kitchen table. Back to the woman who tried to quench her sacred thirst with ordinary gallo wine. I want to push all of her pill bottles off the counter and cheer as they crash. Then I will show her the dresses she designed, those watercolors from her lost self. Maybe I could even lead her up to the roof, where we could sit together, touching the green of trees, and Mom could see that anything is possible. So, um, about 25 years ago, I, I had my last, uh, the beginnings of my last experience with severe depression, and it manifested in the beginning as a very severe migraine. And I, by that time, I had a number of what I called physical depressions, uh, physical, mysterious physical pain that didn't respond to any kind of medication that eventually turned out to be a form of depression. So I knew this, and I kept telling the doctors this, but they weren't listening. And this is the story of a doctor who, who used a word that I had no idea what it meant. It's called diagnosis. There's something stuck in your affect, and when it lifts, you'll be fine. It's that long slide from hopeful to bereft as the gaudy landscape of my life falters in the hallways. Doctors offer me their gifts, Prozac, Paxil, Buspar, Zoloft, six weeks of one and six weeks of another until the gods of serotonin and dopamine push me back into the light. But when my spirit soars with easy smiles and ready laughs, the doctors shake their heads and murmur, Manic, bipolar too. I lose my vocabulary. I gain 50 pounds. I undress alone in the dark. New drugs tamp me down to some arbitrary normal. Life spreads itself before me. Daily postcards of people and plans. But I feel nothing except the smooth surface of the picture, unable to enter its world. So what I'm talking about in that poem is what it feels like to take a mood-regulating drug. And when people say, um, you know, sometimes people who suffer from bipolar disorder, which I actually do not, but I was medicated for that, um, when people say they don't want to take the drug, 
it's because it makes you the way that I describe it is like wearing a wet army blanket all the time that's how it made me feel it just completely suppressed my personality and along with the severe depression that lasted four years I had a, a migraine that lasted for seven years it was my body's way of telling me, you know, you're in a bad situation here. I need to get your attention. And the doctors medicated me with Oxycontin to get rid of the headache, um, and along with numerous psychiatric drugs. So at one point, I was taking eight or nine drugs, and I had a couple of car accidents. And I said, you know what? This isn't working. Western medicine is not working. I, I want to save my life. I don't want to hurt anybody. I realized that having two car accidents, I could have killed somebody. So I sought out an energy healer, and I suspended all disbelief. And this is the story of what happened, the energy healer. I feel like Alice describing the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Will my doctor believe me when I say, I lie in my bed for an hour twice a week while a woman I've never met does distance healing from her home on the other side of Baltimore. She clears my chakras and talks about images and energy fields. How do I explain that seven years of migraine pain gradually faded like the smile of the Cheshire cat once the energy healer described an image she saw? When I got to five, the fifth chakra, I pulled out yards and yards of soft fabric. Then I filled the chakra with swirling orbs of blue light. I discovered that five is the third chakra, my authentic voice, my connection to the divine. But how do I explain the daily light meditations that I use to fill my own chakras with colors? How do I explain the energy shield of white light that now surrounds my body? How does putting flower essences in my water keep my vibrations strong? How do I explain, I don't need any more drugs? How do I explain, this is my last visit? How do I explain, after only four months of energy work, my headache is gone? So that's the happy ending. <laughs> and my next book is a chronicle of uh, all the incredible young people that I've worked with as a teacher. And there are also stories of teachers in here as well, because I had to tell my story. Um, I told Jim, one of our audience members, that I started this book when I worked at Shepherd Pratt Psychiatric Hospital because I was teaching in the high school and my students were so challenging and so difficult that I thought if I could write poems about them, I might begin to understand them better and develop some empathy. So that's where the book started. And this first poem is about a young man that I taught in Howard County. So when people say um, kids aren't learning or kids aren't reading or they're not achieving and they blame the school and they blame the teachers, as a, as a former special education teacher, I'd like, 
I'd like you to listen to this story, and, and maybe the next time you hear a story like that, you'll say to yourself, well, maybe there's more going on in that kid's life. Maybe that's why that kid isn't learning. Julio eats breakfast in reading class. Julio wears new jeans and an Eminem t-shirt. He pounds out hip-hop rhythms on the desk. While I plead, please, can we just get through the story? Julio chugs a 20-ounce monster energy drink, then jumps in front of me and balls his fists. What do you mean by that? Trying to say I'm a loser? Before I can protest, he shouts a line from a song. Don't push me, because I'm close to the edge. Then he lays more beats on his desk, turned wrong. Your stories are lame. You want to hear mine? Of course you don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Julio perches on the edge of his chair, leans back, opens and closes his fist in rapid succession. I don't know if my dad lays me. You ever heard of this game? His friends poured beer into a funnel. My dad chugged it through a tube. Then he fell off the chair. Julio's laugh is hollow. We don't know where he is now. My words stick in my throat. He doesn't register the sorrow on my face. Julio pulls out a bag of Doritos. Can I eat now? My mom didn't make me any breakfast. I always wonder what happened to him. He was actually a really interesting kid. And this next poem is about a young girl that I taught in Richmond, Virginia in the 70s, my very first year of teaching. And her story reminds me of what's happening in Flint and now, sadly, Newark with the water situation. It's called Maxine the Hugger. When Maxine enters the speech room, she always throws her arms around my neck. Today, she pulls my face close to her cheek. Her party dress is dotted with food stains, the gray-white collar frayed and limp. Maxine smells like musty sheets draped over furniture in an abandoned house. Her blonde bangs graze the top of her brows, thick lashes frame hopeful eyes. As if to answer the question I would never ask, Maxine tells me, we don't have no water in our house. She reads the worry on my face. But Mama says not to fret, because Uncle Todd, he lives two houses down. He's going to want a hose over to our place. So that was Richmond, Virginia, in the 70s. And this is one of the poems about um, a student that I taught at Shepherd Pratt. And I have changed all the names. Marcus Speaks. The day he showed up, I found a note on my desk. New student today. He's nonverbal. I treated Marcus like everyone else and invited him to make an introduction. He glared, towered over the others shoved his papers onto the floor, and barked. The other boys laughed. Marcus barked again, 
ending with a low growl. Even in a psych hospital, a boy who barks is threatening. Every day, Marcus scowled, paced in the back of the room, sometimes whimpering low and soft like a wounded puppy, sometimes leaping in front of a laughing classmate, wailing or yelping, scaring them into silence. The psychiatrist had no answers, and the behavior specialist just shrugged. One day, Marcus dropped his homework on my desk and barked in my face. That sounds like an angry bark to me. I locked eyes with Marcus, and he grinned. Then he said, can you move my seat? That was the first time he ever talked and didn't bark. I, it was pure desperation, you know? That sounds like an angry bark to me. <laughs> Maybe he thought, well, somebody finally got it. And this is the, uh, this is a poem about, you know, kind of my, my wishes for what school would be like and my regrets over what public schools are turning into. It's called Wingless Bird. I'm trying to imagine a wingless bird tangled in this garden. Could he sing me awake in the morning? his hollow-boned body unbalanced and frail. And then I'm in the classroom with my students no, who are no longer allowed the freedom to wander the gardens of their dreams, arrested souls forced under the conveyor belt of the public schools, relentlessly moving toward the same invisible goal. If my school were like a garden, there would be shaded places to pause, to touch pink flower petals, lift the blossoms to your face, follow the flight of a honeybee. But on the production line that is the modern school, one question remains, who will thrive and who will fly? Thank you. Stanley Plumley as first place winner in the 2015 Bethesda Literary Arts Festival Poetry Contest and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her work is published in Potomac Review, Little Patuxent Review, Beechwood Review, Haven Today, and Snapdragon, and it's included in the anthology Red Sky Poetry on the Global Epidemic of Violence Against Women. Anne lives in Maryland with her family where she teaches music and plays clarinet with the Columbia Orchestra. Her degrees are in music performance. She fell in love with poetry in midlife. Her chapbook, Final Deployment, is published by Finishing Line Press. A lovely example of Anne Quinn's work is the poem, Three Years After My Father's Final Deployment to the Gulf of Tonkin. This poem remembers drawing in first grade on big sheets of soft urine-colored paper 
the kind that would tear with no sound, like a piece of American cheese. It would even muffle the sound of the pencil darkening the page. End quote. Wonderfully vivid and realistic, this passage also gestures so delicately towards the way human endeavors can lead to destruction. It's the perfect beginning to what seems to be a simple poem at first, but turns out to be so much more a meditation on tragedy and what survives. Poet Leo Purpura writes, elegiac at core, the poems in Final Deployment are also full of musings on art, precisely conjured memories, tender and fleeting moments with children, and above all, a love for the world in all its mystery and beauty. Please help me to welcome Anne Quinn. Thank you, Shailene. So I started writing poetry in 2010, and I started coming to these events at the Pratt. And of course, it's been on my bucket list to be up here and to be introduced by Shailene. Um, so I'll read some books, some poems from my book, but uh, also some others. Um, I have an autumn theme. So when I was 29 and had finished grad school and I was trying to figure out what to do with my degrees in clarinet performance, I worked briefly as a maid at the Red Lion Inn in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I was a terrible maid. <laughs> <laughs> Leaf season at the Red Lion Inn. The maids gather in a hidden hallway. They've driven from the old mill towns. Now bedroom communities for staging this clever fiction of a lost America. The guests, dressed by L.L. Bean, have checked out. It is leaf season and they are off to the next stop, leaving rumpled beds, hairs in showers, and likely no tip. The girls, eternally girls at this job in their candy-striped jumpers <coughs> and perma-press white blouses, endure a scolding about yesterday's lapses, one strand of hair blemishing the porcelain perfection of a toilet in 314, or a speck of tissue brightening a carpet in 403, incurs the wrath of the matron. Then they load their carts with dead white sheets, disinfected towels, little gift-wrapped soaps, lion-crested razors and matchbooks, and are off to set a new stage. Outside, the sky and the leaves are enough to make anyone believe in God, a cathedral of color and light. But here, the maids see only as far as the vacuum can reach. Meanwhile, the leaves are dropping, and when the maids finish and go home to their own unmade beds and stray hairs, cigarettes in hand, not really any of the richer, it's just that much closer to winter. Okay, the next poem is the first section of a long poem from my chapbook, um, the, the chapbook Final Deployment. Um, the long poem is called Elegy from My Mother. I wanted to share this first section of it because I just saw, I drove into Howard County and I saw a sign 
number of overdoses with a number, mm-hmm. number of deaths from opioids with a number. And you'll see how it relates to the poem. October 11th, 1970. I am in my first grade classroom in Lexington Park, Maryland. The teacher has made a space capsule from a card table and blanket. Inside are two children picked to be astronauts, a boy and a girl named Krista Flynn, pretty and blonde like her four sisters. This year, her father will die in a training flight. Today, I am jealous that she was chosen, not me, so she gets to hide in that cramped, dark space for as long as she can bear it, pretending to go to the moon. The real astronauts who landed on the moon when we were four were once at test pilot school, like our fathers. Three days a week, I go to swim team at the base, and when we drive through the gate, a man in uniform salutes my mother when she shows him her officer's wife ID, and the kids in the carpool crane their necks to see the sign that tells how many were injured and how many have died this year. New numbers are exciting. So I've been working for the last year plus on poems about my grandparents. And I have a rich trove of artifacts from them. My grandfather began began his career uh, teaching in a one-room schoolhouse in Illinois. Um, Later he was a principal in Illinois, and then he moved to Florida where he ran a frozen custard stand before returning to the teaching profession as a junior high school teacher. Um, This poem is written in the form of an abecedarian, which is one in which each line starts with a letter of the alphabet going down from A A to Z. So if you want to follow that progression, you can. And by the way, it's called Media Teacherage, Illinois. And a teacherage is a real thing. It's, um, It's like a parsonage. So single teachers lived in these houses in the town, you know, if they weren't from that town. So media teacherage from a photograph, 1949. All the others in the album are family snapshots, but here is a posed professional five by seven capturing four young women gathered around the dining room table in a room empty of personality, like a home fixed up for sale. Their plates and glasses are empty, the aroma of dinner distinctly absent. Here, no cook, no mother, no one but the teachers. In between drama club and grading English composition papers, there's just enough time to heat some soup in the tiny kitchen, just enough nourishment to last until a hurried breakfast, marmalade from an aunt's vacation in Florida, the day's treat, not quite enough time to wash up, so dishes are scraped and left in the sink or on the counter. Hopefully the principal or school board members won't stop by today, querying about lesson plans or student behavior. Roberta, at 32, the most senior of the teachers, refuses to play a mothering role, for the sooner the others understand that each must do her share at the very least, the sooner these women realize 
that no white knight or naval officer, that picture on the mantle was there when they arrived. No one knows who he is or has the heart to take him down, is going to extract them from the years of chalk dust that yawn before them, the zest that begins each September but slowly dissipates like their youth. Procession. Driving to work Good Friday, I saw the cross, borne by children, and all day carried the sight of this ancient procession. That was the intent of the priest leading them, I suppose, as if this anachronism, the priest's long robes, the heavy cross shouldered by children in modern dress, attempting solemnity, lamenting down a busy street, could unsettle us all from complacency in this world. It seems as though life itself can do that work. It seems as though we've had nothing but rain since then, and front doors are swelling so that neighbors are having to find other ways in and out of their homes. But at this moment, the sky is blue, and I hear the soft autumn chatter of the birds and squirrels. Just a few leaves have changed color. I watch one drift down. The sun warms my hands. I took part in an ekphrasis um, project at the Writers' Center in Bethesda. Ekphrasis is when poetry, well, one form of ekphrasis is when poetry is informed by painting. So they took a group of painters from one class and invited writers from the Writers' Center to write responses to one of the paintings. So the painting was about two-thirds gray on the bottom, a thin stripe of colorful decoration, and then I think it was pink above or blue above that. So I'm driving home thinking, what am I going to write about this painting? And then I thought of what it was. So the poem is called Hades Waiting. Through this cranny I watch while she is away as a respite from my toil and to temper the loneliness. A small window, but her work is powerful. As she rouses the soil, I smell the infant awakening. Though my task is death, I know birth, it's auger. Air softens, becomes her caress, world her newborn, her canvas. The color of sky deepens a bit each day, blue slowly draining into it, the way pink blooms her cheeks when she is pleased. Tree branches haze, yellow, then the pale greens darken and fill like her mother's anger. That anger holds time still in a ceaseless green. Only birds relieve the monotony, those small bits of animated color reminding me of her, never still, always making things, always singing. At last, insects begin to voice my longing in an endless, restless symphony. 
Tree fire kindles, burning away the green mask, revealing a beauty that heralds the dark sweetness of her homecoming. So I have one more poem, and this is also from Final Deployment, which um, basically it's about my mother's death from cancer, and um, my father was a pilot in the Vietnam War, Navy pilot, and um, just our family's experience with that. This is another ekphrastic poem. This was uh, inspired by Picasso's painting, which hangs in the National Gallery, called The Tragedy. Um, just if you can probably recall it, if I describe it a little bit, it's from his blue period. Um, it shows a mother and father and a child who's about half their height um, standing in this blue place. And it was painted in 1903. The Tragedy. The family stands huddled like oaks in a November storm. The boy looks as old as his parents, only half their height. He resembles the young oak, which holds its dead leaves after the others have laid bare their branches, so that it looks at once both old and wizened and young and naive, that we could be fooled by its cloak of wrinkled leaves into believing winter not here. He gestures to his parents as if showing an idea, one that re would remove them from this desolate shore and out of their ragged clothes. And isn't it the duty of the young to shake us from our despair or our complacency? As when a three-year-old Syrian named Alan washed ashore face down in his Velcro sneakers to show us that within the great human tides are humans. That behind every act of violence are the stories. And is that why my father taped Alain's last picture to the wall? Beside the old photos of my sister and me as children and the newer photos of our children, Alain's age and so like him as penance for the bombs dropped in Vietnam. The awards for that hang there, too. My father so close then to childhood, to the comic book tales that the good guys will win and those who can fly can repair the world. But now that youthful certainty is gone. Leaves released. Yes, it is winter. delightful 
and I am very honored to be here. Very grateful. Thank you so very much. It seems that all of you write from a place of pain, in some cases, well. And I know for myself, when I am able to be vulnerable and talk about my pain, it's, it's very healing. And I'm wondering if you all have made a conscious decision to do that, where that's that just happens? That's a great question. Do you want me to talk into a mic? Or? Oh, yes. Um, if you can talk into the, I'm sorry, these are um, handouts. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I started writing poetry before my mother got sick, and, and then life took over and little kids and so on, so I wasn't writing. And then, um, she died, and I just had to start writing poetry again. And it is, it's very healing, and it just is. Um, so that's that's something I'm interested in, is, is helping people, you know, through their, through life, by writing. Yeah. And I, I've uh, started writing poetry when I went through my uh, experience of depression in the 90s and it was the only, almost the only way to, to deal with the darkness that was inside. Um, and, uh, and at the same time I discovered that there was actually a profession called poetry therapy. So I thought, oh, that's what I'm doing. And uh, I was so drawn to that that I went and uh, went through the training to become a poetry therapist. So. That's how I entered poetry, not through the literary route, but through the through the route of poetry being a way to process what's inside of you. Yeah, I guess the main thing I think about with poetry is that I think it's just important to be honest. And so, <laughs> yeah, so, and I think especially in terms of for me, and with Tramp, I was trying to write honestly about these women's lives, that it was very important. Because there's, there's no books about them. Like, there's, they're not in history at all. And I just felt like it's important to really capture people's experience and try to be honest about what it's really like. So. Thank you. This was, was so moving, uh, all three of you just stirred my heart so much. Um, I wonder if you could each speak a little bit about um, what the experience of the, the root, uh, R-O-U-T-E, um, from first idea, how that is different from the more logical left brain trying to explain what you're saying versus the poetic stream root, I don't know the right word for it, but it's distinct. Mm -hmm. And it's distinct, I guess, in the process of finding it and in the process of listening to it. It's different than if you would each sat up there and said what you were trying to say in, in regular words. It's, 
has it's tapped into something that's so deep and moving for me. It's beautiful. Thank you. I mean, in terms of like the root of like an idea to the page, kind of is that what you? The conduit, because what is that? What is that conduit of poetry versus the conduit of logical, you know, explanation? It's a different route. That yeah, that's a tough question. I, I mean, to think about how that really, I guess, how that works. The, I guess if I think about, like, I keep notebooks, and I have a lot of stuff that starts and doesn't go anywhere, but I think the other thing is that um, I'm also just a very visual thinker, and um, so that kind of changes how I write. And then um, I also had done music as a kid. And so um, I think that that played a big role. It's very guiding to me in terms of how I think. But um, I don't know. I think the main thing is when I started, I, when I think of when I started writing when I was a kid, there used to be the show Big Blue Marble that was on Saturdays. <laughs> and I had pen pals through Big Blue Marble. And, I think of poetry kind of the same way. It's just it's a way of talking to other, or talking to someone else, and that's and so I have to, for me, I have to feel like it's something that I need to tell someone, um, but not. And I think it took off a lot of the pressure of feeling like I was on a public stage. Um, you know, that it was just someone I was writing to who wrote to me, who's gonna who listen back. Um, for me, it feels like it's always different. Sometimes trying to write in a form like the Abyssidarian will bring forth something I didn't know was there. Um, sometimes something will come to me. That's lovely when that happens. Um, I can write it down. Uh, sometimes I just write something terrible and then just keep looking at it, keep changing it bit by bit until it becomes something. So it's it's just it's a mystery process. That's why there's so many tormented poets. <laughs> uh, I think for me, especially in writing my first book, The Altar of Innocence, I uh, wanted to take out my own voice of judgment and anger. And, you know, good poetry is not pounding on the table, and it's not uh, telling you what to think. It, it invites you into an experience. And so uh, I consciously worked hard to invite people into those experiences and to create vignettes. And uh, with a lot of the studying that I've done um, about drama in education and poetry therapy, I, I've really learned the power of art to speak to all of us, and so my, you know, my frustration as a public school teacher with wanting to change the system and knowing that I couldn't, I thought, well, what is it that I can do? What is it that one person can do? And I thought, hey, I can tell stories, and stories change people's hearts, and so that's for me, that's the power of poetry is telling a story that can speak to someone's heart and. When I write a poem, I'm always working to tell a story and maybe show you a corner that, that you haven't seen before. We can take a couple more questions, if there are any. 
Thank you all so much. Uh, we'd love to hear another poem from each of you, and we, especially now that we've heard a little more about um, your process and the root of your poetry. Um, so if you would like to sit at the table and each share, that would be really wonderful before we close. I'll read a poem that was um, a failure about where do poems start. So the, uh, I wanted to write a sestina. I had this goal that I was going to write this poem that is this intricate form of these end words that they rotate. It's like a machine, and it just wasn't happening. And so <laughs> the, um, this is what's left of the poem. And so you'll hear some of the end words, what's kind of left of the sestina, the kind of ghost that's in there. And uh, so when those words are repeating, they were end words, and now they're like in the middle of the line or whatever. Okay, and so the title just goes into the first line of the poem. Um, and it's a poem addressed to one of my kids. When you were at Children's, I wanted to go back to when you were small. We went to the garden store. The cart you sat sometimes stood in. Waves of petunias, snapdragons out in the sun. And the car, it was full of flowers, the petals that fell like words. Nouns waiting for verbs, your first words. And we walked through the yard, scooping handfuls of dirt, whacking at the ground to make way for your bright pink petunias before you wandered down the hill, returned with rocks. You arranged them carefully so we could shimmy the flowers out of their pots, so we could blanket the ground in petunias, so we could lie down and the rain would rain from your watering can, the watering can you picked with much consternation and a light wind would lift a few words from this page and deposit them in a sea of petunias because you are my petunia, and we will ride in your submarine slash watering can. The spout makes a good periscope. And we will read the water as if each wave were a page in a story about a girl who wants to visit the sun and the moon, maybe the stars, whose ship is stored with petunias, dirt and spades, and in the hull the words I wish I knew that might accompany her like a compass into the far night. I was going to read the three years after my father's final deployment, but I decided let's end on a slightly hopeful note. That's where it's ending with poetry. Another acrostic poem, this is called The Great Wave of Kanagawa, which I assume you can picture. Picture Hokusai's famous print and consider the thousands of hours he spent as an apprentice, then in his own shop sharpening pencils, grinding inks, cutting paper, refining brush strokes, developing the mastery to craft this image. Imagine its history, its initial showing in the Edo shop, and its sale for the price of two bowls of noodles. Then, decades later, its voyage to Europe, its effect on Debussy, Hergé, Degas. Think of all the students who have studied this work or glanced at it while turning through their texts, and the myriad pages of scholarly insight in so many languages, read left to right, right to left, top to bottom. Count up all the money that has changed hands 
over likenesses of this work on posters, mugs, keychains, journals, pop art, t-shirts, silk scarves, and all the other nothings that can be made of a something we admire. Now regard Hokusai's model, a version of which, in the time you spent listening to this poem, has self-obliterated approximately 4,812,000,000 times on all the world's coastlines. Smaller, yes, none tower over Mount Fuji, but each one so perfect in its motion, harmony and violence distilled. Forget your worries about this, your place in this world. We all gentle lappers and giant rogues alike will crash one day and dissolve back into the same great ocean. And I'm going to read a poem. Uh, I don't usually read brand new work at a reading, but uh, I was in Belgium about two weeks ago, and one of the uh, highlights of my trip was to go and visit Flanders Field. Uh, if you've ever heard of Flanders Field, one of the very famous battlefields from World War One. Battles raged there for four years. It was the Western Front for the um, Germans and the British, and I visited the town of Ypres, they call it Ypres in Belgium, uh, the French call it Ypres, and the British call it Wipers because it started with a Y, so they just call it Wipers, so now you know all three names. And there's one mention in here of a place called the Menin Gate. The Menin Gate is a monument in uh, Ypres that memorializes all the people who died whose bodies were never found. A visit to Flanders Field. When my father was very small, he told his dad, you must think you as a Kaiser. Somehow knowing the Kaiser's words, like his father's, to be laws etched in iron. And I am drawn back in time, beyond today's Flanders fields of leeks and broccoli, far from the white cows with the short legs, lying placidly in the grass. Those cows, never suspecting a sinkhole could open from the gash of an old trench, or an unexploded bomb could be nudged awake by the simple movement of their hooves upon the earth. Neatly stacked beside a two-lane road, unexploded shells and chemical weapons rusted yet whole wait patiently for the bomb squad. Not even 100 years have rendered them safe. Today's wisteria-covered cottages morph into pools of clay and water, a thick soup sucking life from horses and men. As the October breeze shifts, I hear the cries of the wounded, fierce octaves of anguish. The soldiers are all around me, the Germans, the Irish, the Brits, and the Aussies. Those boys and men of the Great War, La Grande Guerre. 
I stand in cemetery after cemetery filled with endless rows of white grave markers decorated with wooden crosses bearing red poppies and wait for twilight and the bugles of the last post at the Menden Gate. Thank you again so much for sharing your poetry with us tonight, Joelle and Anne. Thank you all for spending your evening with us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.